Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com i mean no one plans to get sick and yet here we are my name is matthew zachary a quarter century ago i was given six months to live with a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer for more than 15 years i've been ranting and raving on the air about stupid cancer and now stupid healthcare and i'm just getting warmed up so let's all go make healthcare suck less together because you know what we're all out of patience hey that's the name of the show we've got a really important bonus episode today of out of patience I'm joined by Dr. Mitzi Krokover, who hosts Beyond the Paper Gown, a women's health podcast, which is right here on the Oscar Health Podcast Network. You can subscribe to that show wherever you get your podcasts. The name again is Beyond the Paper Gown. Mitzi is a women's health physician, and she is the founding medical director of the Iris Cantor UCLA Women's Health Center at, you got it, UCLA. She's been heavily invested throughout her entire career in women's health what that means, and how it's evolved across the decades leading into today's age of digital health, diagnostics, technology, and an appreciation for how social media has transformed the way we engage with and trust medicine and doctors and biotech and pharma and medicine and and, and all the things. Among the many things we talk about, we focus on a recent webinar she did called Aftershocks, Unexpected Consequences of the Roe v. Wade Decision, Implications for Rights, Health, Privacy, and Business. Link in the description to that particular webinar. You're going to want to listen to it. She's an absolutely inspiring entrepreneurial medical professional hellbent on doing the right thing and pushing this country forward in the right direction. Without further ado, Dr. Mitzi Krokover. Enjoy the show. All right, Dr. Mitzi Krokover, you are the kind of doctor that if someone on an airplane says, is there a doctor in a house, you can actually be helpful. I would hope so. Well, has that ever happened? No, but I was in a very crowded restaurant in Louisiana and a pregnant lady fainted and I did come to her assistance. So there's that. But did someone actually (laughs) shout, is there a doctor in the house? Yes, actually. There you go. You're a movie star <laughs> and you didn't even know it. Also, I should also say it happened in a synagogue during a high holidays. That's a mitzvah. <laughs> I know. I hope so. <laughs> was it, was, was it, I mean, I'm Jewish. I can say this, you're Jewish. Like, was it one of the shuls where they actually allow women to do things? 
Oh, yeah. It was actually this, the Temple for the Performing Arts in Los Angeles. So High Holiday Services were actually performed at the Beverly Hilton <laughs> ballroom. <laughs> I mean, you can't argue with that. I, the reason I ask is I have a legitimate story that in, in one of the more orthodox synagogues in Brooklyn a couple of years ago, there was a story of how, you know, they separate the men and the women and something happened. The guy had a stroke and there was a woman doctor in the audience, but she didn't hear them yelling for the oh, doctor. No. Eventually someone else came and helped them, but it was just like another, anyway, that's separate podcast for that one, but I, I had to get that in there. Oh, I love that story. Thank exactly. you. <laughs> I'll use that one. I know. So you, you've you been doing this a while. You've seen medicine change significantly. You've seen society and culture change significantly as I, as I have and most of our listeners have. Clearly we're going to get into all the utter nonsensical bullshit that's going on in this country, but let's get started with like interning, getting into medicine in, in before Y2K. Antediluvian times. <laughs> I <laughs> love you. that word. SAT word. Antediluvian. Look it up, friends. Yes. I mean, I was diagnosed in 96. So that was my first introduction mm-hmm. to like the napalming of things with people and you, people dying of AIDS and, and you know everything else. And coming of age in the dot-com and electronic medical record space, do you have any one thing that was like, holy shit, this is going to change everything in your career? Actually, it's the thing that I think a lot of people have been dealing with in the last three years, and that is the acceleration of digital health. It has really changed everything from access through telehealth appointments, through apps where you can find out information and access other practitioners and even connect with devices. So Certainly, there's a lot of things that have happened over the last few years, and I'll go back to that in just a moment. But honestly, I really think that we have seen a significant sea change with respect to uh, the the use of telehealth and digital technology. Okay, so a good use of the internet. Yes, yes. But there as are so many bad uses. <laughs> yes, exactly. And even that, as we can talk about a little bit later, is fraught if if it's not used appropriately. But I want to just answer your other question. The other thing that you know is near and dear to my heart that I've seen has changed significantly is the focus on women's health. Because when I um, was at UCLA um, in the 90s, there were a group of us that wanted to develop a women's health center. And thank goodness for Iris Cantor, who came along and wanted to uh, fund that vision. And we were able to create that. Now, granted, I thought that we'd have a center like that on every corner by now, but it's really only been in the last maybe five years that even this whole idea about femtech or women's health technology and women's health has really, again, um, accelerated. And so we're now seeing a lot more development in the area of women's health, not only for reproductive health, but all the way to you know menopause and, and beyond. That's really coming to the forefront. And that, to me, is very gratifying. The idea that a women's health center is a new idea by comparison to how long we've been practicing medicine is ridiculous. It should have been around for as long. I I like to think of progress as an ebb tide, right? Every time the the ocean comes in and we progress, it goes back out and we find all this new shit in the sand that we totally (laughs) forgot about. Oh, my God, we got these people to worry about now. But all in all, I mean, what is that expression? The, 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 The arc of justice bends towards something like that. The moral arc of the universe, Ben Soar's justice. Well, you know, again, there were so many things, but it was really almost expediency, right? Because it wasn't until 1994 that women and other underrepresented 
um, groups were even mandated to be in clinical trials. So everything that we knew was based on the 70 kilogram white male. And so that was fraught, if you will. And until we understood all the nuances and, you know, again, if nothing is, if, if it doesn't make it to the bench, the laboratory bench, it doesn't make it to the journals and the textbooks, and it doesn't make it into medical education and doesn't make it into the bedside. So that was, again, that was a, um, a long road to haul and we're still we're only scratching the surface now. Right. And now we're like, well, why don't trials work on people of color? Oh, because they're not involved in the trials. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Really, I remember, I think it was Pfizer, not that I threw them under the bus. I think their COVID vaccine, the, the most diverse trials ever, because it was all the Europeans. That's why. <laughs> well, you know, and there's also challenges because of, unfortunately, our history that underrepresented groups are very uh, distrustful of those clinical trials. Do you see that in women's health in general? Is it is there a gender disparity in terms of that perception of mistrust or is there a, a more intellectual appreciation because this is more of, more of an underserved part of the species than an underserved part of the culture? You know, it depends on, again, what demographic you are. If you're a black woman, you are probably very distrustful of the regular clinical trials and that kind of thing because of our history. But what's really exciting to me is not only are we seeing more women in medicine and science, so they're looking at some of these issues and propelling the research, but also we have now these innovators who have literally identified pain points of their own and not finding a solution are creating those solutions. And when those when they create those solutions, they bring on others and they're actually collecting data that we never had before. And a lot of that data will now be used to be able to to help further the progress. So in that way, there's a lot of optimism there. Well, I don't want to understate something you said before, which is that you're the founding medical director of the Iris Cantor UCLA Women's Health Center. That's a really big deal. And I'd like to think there are more copycats because I hope it's been incredibly successful. Can you talk to the impact that it's had? And are people now saying, how the hell do we not have this? <laughs> well, you know, it was really, again, it was um, not only myself, but my colleagues at UCLA that came together. And not only the internist, which it's based in internal medicine or adult medicine, but as well as all of our subspecialists came together to kind of make this virtual one-stop shop women's health Center, and we were designated a center of excellence in women's health by the Department of Health and Human Services. That actually had there are now a number of centers of excellence in academic centers throughout the country, and I will. I'm also very proud to say that it is the Iris Cantor UCLA Women's Health Center is still going strong under the um, direction of um, one of my colleagues and good friends, Dr. Janet Pregler. And so it's still doing its good work and, you know, has been a model for, for other centers. But we need to take them out of the academic medical centers and make them much more accessible. And what, again, very proud of and what I'm so happy to see is happening is that that same faculty and and and, and others are able to impact on the medical students that come through, the residents, and even the faculty to teach them about women's health. It reminds me of like the old Livestrong days in the, in the early 2000s. One of the things that they pioneered was something called a survivorship care clinic, where the hospitals were like, 
all these people are living now. What do we do? And uh, they're like, let's build some standards in the clinics on how to manage them as people to get back to whatever whatever their new lives are going to be. We're going to manage that. And like, that should not have been a revolutionary thought. But at the same time, it kind of gave birth to, you know, listeners will know the acronym, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Like they developed the standards mm-hmm. and the guidelines sure. by which hospitals should practice uniformity across the country. And now we're like, we can't live without these. <laughs> right. You know, I remember when we were first talking about the center and one of my colleagues was a little bit perplexed and said, are we going to now balkanize, you know, healthcare to women's health and other groups? And, you know, for me, it's just representative of the fact that we need to look at an individual in the context of whether it be their gender, their sexual orientation, their environment, their medical conditions their family history, whatever it is, and treat those patients, but understanding all those factors. And so, you know, again, if the Women's Health Center can be a model for that and looking at women's health just in general can be a model for that, then I think that it has uh, made its impact. So you're really good at the kind of like de jargoning. You have good guests on that, like, don't tolerate bullshit and too many syllables. <laughs> I mean, the phrase of the day is social determinants of health. And that's such yes. an academic, dry, acerbic way to look at like the aridness of the lack of humanity in the shit people deal with. (laughs) I'll use lots of adverbs as we speak, as we go on. How do you dissect this, this just this apathetic semantic and trickle it down into practice? You know, I always chuckle because, you know, we were always dealing with it what we now call SDOH. That's the acronym. And, you know, it was, to me, it's always funny. It's kind of like, now all of a sudden we can code for it and, you know, and and doctors can actually, you know, get reimbursed for dealing with it when, and, you know, it was always there and it really dictates what access to health or healthcare someone has. It even, even talks about, do they have transportation? Do they have safety in their neighborhoods? Everything that I think you know, again, impacts all of us, impacts on our health. And so to me, it was kind of like a no brainer, like a duh, but and I think to a lot of practitioners as well. But the fact that we now have an acronym, or as you said, a, I, how did you describe it? An acerbic, oh. you know, <laughs> set of, set of words, you know, I think helps to at least codify it so that we can at least acknowledge it. And it really has moved the needle in a lot of ways. And even to the effect of not just for practitioners, but even health plans are incorporating that into the way that they provide services or benefits to their um, insured or employers um, looking at it for their employees. So in that way, I think it's a positive. So the now sentient Google AI that's going to kill us all one day, this is data that actually comes in handy. (laughs) Yes, I hope it's not sentient. (laughs) I mean, we're taping this in July. This is airing in September. We hope you're alive to listen to the show after Labor Day. Oh, please. (laughs) Right. But this goes back to digital health. You mentioned telehealth. I want to wrap up this half of the show by asking you about the American consumer's perception of trusting telehealth, similar to how we wouldn't even give our credit cards to Amazon 20 years ago. Are we trusting it? You know, it's really an interesting question that you just posed, because I would have said about two weeks ago, yeah, I mean, people are doing it. It's convenient. They feel that it's protected. And in fact, 
it's not just being on a Zoom call. It's literally there should be layers of privacy and protection through the Patient Privacy Act, which is called HIPAA. But one of my guests on a webinar that I had recently mentioned the fact that, again, there are populations that don't trust this and um, may be very reticent to use telehealth. And so that gets to, again, an issue about looking at the client, the customer, the patient, and, you know, one size does not fit all. Because when the country shut down in 2020, telehealth had this massive boom because there was nothing else to do and nowhere else to go. But data coming out of either the CDC or Harvard Business suggested that like 80% of the people that didn't do telehealth were people of color. Right. Exactly. On that lighthearted note, let's take a quick break and we'll come back to talk about your show and your amazing guests and your love of femtech and, of course, fucking Roe v. Wade. (laughs) Always look on the bright side. All right. We'll be right back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. All right, we're back on a happy, you know, I just had a drink, so I'm feeling a little better than when we left the first half of the show. Let's talk about Beyond the Paper Gown. I was introduced to you. It was like one of the greatest first dates in history. How have I not known you existed all this time? We've meandered across like ships in the night for many, many years now. I love everything you do, everything you stand for. It's exactly the right notes to hit, especially today in this culture and this economy. What got you started beyond your obviousness and passion for it to codify this into a podcast and a women's health community? Thank you for those very kind words. And I feel the very uh, same about you, Matt. Again, going back to our previous conversation about SDOH and all those factors that impact on women's health specifically, I really feel like knowing about medical conditions isn't enough, that women, in order to really get optimal health, 
do need to know how to navigate the system, need to understand why the system may or may not be working for them, to be very sensitive to external factors that may be either working or not working on their behalf, as well as to know about innovations. I mean, I'll give you an example. I went to a conference on women's health and it was supposed to be the latest and greatest information. And I went to a one of the um, sessions about, I, I can't even remember what it was about, but I knew that there was a device that they weren't talking about that was on the market. And I raised my hand. Nobody knew anything about it. So I said, you know what? We need to make this information available, not only to the doctors, but to the patients, because a lot of the times patients will drive, you know, the, the usage of some of those things. So I really wanted to bring that all together for women my main demographic, if you will, is is women over 40, but I think a lot of what we talk about transcends age. And to really talk about those issues and try to look at it through that 360 prism, if you will, rather than just focusing on the clinical manifestations or the the treatments that are available right now. I mean, my daughter, who's 12, uh, she's like a Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't know what I did right or wrong to have her become this person. She asks That's me every great. now and then, Daddy, we're just bags of meat on a rock floating in chaos. And like, And then your head goes like cockeyed because you, you, you can't think that deeply into the way life in the universe. So I, I want to ask you, like, like, what is women's health? Because if you think about it, you can go cross-eyed trying to figure it out, right? It's everything. Sure. Well, there's a very simple way of looking at it, and it's kind of a three-pronged definition. Women's health are those conditions that either manifest differently in women, the example being a heart heart attack. Women don't come in with that, what we call Levine sign, clutching their chest. chest. They have maybe nausea or maybe some arm pain or that kind of thing. So you need to know, and you need to diagnose and treat women differently in some cases, even if they have the same kinds of diseases that men do. The other ones are those that are predominantly in women, like osteoporosis and rheumatoid diseases, or they're exclusively in women, such as reproductive health issues, for example, or breast cancer, which is 99% of people with breast cancer are women. So if you think about women's health in that way, that pretty much encompasses it. Got it. I mean, there's there's so many things to be aware of, so many lessons to be learned. I mean, are we, are we really trying to teach people to stop eating McDonald's or what can be done to mitigate the <laughs> let's deal with the fact that people are eating McDonald's? It's totally metaphoric for the whole country, of course. <laughs> I, I ask that because I have a friend who has a, a lab that does esophageal cancer, pre-cancer testing, and their job is to get GIs do this uh, test for Barrett's when they're getting endoscopies or if they're on group medications. And the goal is not to stop people from having Chipotle. Chipotle is not a sponsor, but I'm just using it <laughs> as a metaphor on the show here. If you can't get people to stop eating Chipotle because that's so fucking good, the least you can do is intervene when they're getting their endoscopies to see if they're precancerous. Is there a version of that? How do you intervene in women's health? That's a really great question. The All right, we're done. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> The one example I can think of, and again, women end up coming to their physicians more than men do in general, just because we have, you know, either we're having babies or we have, um, you know, these well visits. And I think that that's the, you know, that's part of what you're talking about. We do pap smears, right? And that is a screening, an easy screening for um, cervical cancer or to look at H, you know, to see if somebody has HPV that might be a precursor. So maybe that's the example. 
and, you know, doing a breast exam when someone comes in, you know, a good example. So when we, um, when I was a resident in my internal medicine residency, we were asked or expected to do a pelvic exam on every woman, whether or not they came in for that, which might seem kind of invasive and, you know, and, and, and weird, but honestly, some women had not had those exams and we were able to, to do that in a proactive way. So perhaps that's the example. I love that you mentioned uh, HPV. It's clearly something I've worked on very heavily in my, my former job at Stupid Cancer is what do we do if you get it and how can you actually, actually, actually never get it by getting Gardasil. But Gardasil is now available, I think, up to 40 years old. So yeah. there's now incredibly new ways to, I, I think, dare say convince or explain or discuss preventative care in that one specific thing. How do you feel about that? In terms of that, I think it's a great, you know, anytime that you can, again, take a technology and make it accessible and also, you know, get people to to adopt it, I think that's great. But not to be a, a Debbie Downer, you know, one of the challenges during COVID, and especially for women, was that women weren't going in to get those preventive tests. And a lot of people weren't, men, women, everybody. And so what I'm really concerned about, and I think a lot of people are, is that those tests and those opportunities for prevention were not obtained, and we're going to see cancer diagnosed more frequently and at a later stage. And so one of the episodes I had was bringing on my colleague, Janet Preckler, that I mentioned before, to talk about, you know, what do you need to do in terms of keeping your keeping your uh, self healthy. And a lot of that has to do with preventive practices and screenings and vaccinations, for example. Right. Shameless plug for the Oscar Health Podcast Network. We did a series <laughs> with the CDC a year ago called The Big Screen, which was mm. derivative of how many people are now going to get more cancer because they couldn't get screened for two and a half years. Um, spoiler alert, it's fucking scary. But let's I want to let, let's dig a little deeper into your show, Beyond the Paper Gown, available sure. wherever you get your podcasts on proudly on the Oscar Health Podcast Network. I mean, it's like picking your favorite kid. Like you have any particular notable <laughs> shows that you, you just constantly referring to besides the one you did with your partner? <laughs> That's exactly right. I was thinking about when you had asked me about that. And I was like, God, it is like picking your favorite child. You know, the one that we just did um, that just uh, was released with Dr. Lindsay Harper, who is not only an OBGYN who has a special interest in um, certification in sexual health, but she started a her own company um, in sexual health called Rosie. And we talked about sexual health. And we talked about orgasms and, you know, what happens when things don't work so right and, and the positives of sex. So I think that that might be something that uh, people don't usually think about when they think of women's health, perhaps, or, um, or a podcast on it. We did something on the vaginal biome, for example, with um, a researcher from um, the University of Arizona, Melissa Herbst Kralovitz, who has been doing research in this area. And it's Amazing. I did not know, for example, that the um, vaginal that uh, bacterial vaginosis could be a sexually transmitted disease. I, I will say that I learn something on every podcast, so it's always fun with me, for me, I should say. And um, she actually even uh, stated that uh, the vagina was like a self cleaning oven. So that that visual didn't uh, leave me anytime soon. All right. So I've done maybe 300 shows already and no one's ever said mm -hmm. that. So congratulations <laughs> for being first to market with that euphemism on my show. 
Uh, thank you. I have to give her all the cred. Now say pelvic floor 10 times fast. Exactly. And we did. We did a lot of pelvic health and osteoporosis. Uh, so again, it's it's really hard. We talked about brain health. And again, the new information that's coming out, even from the time that, you know, when I started practicing to now, we've talked about that pendulum, I think, that you talked about earlier. It's really swung with respect to hormone replacement therapy. And that's a whole other podcast, too. <laughs> exactly. So I, you, I, I did a terrible job of picking my favorite because they're all my favorites. <laughs> By the way, before we get to our hot topic, which is your recent uh, webinar on the overturning of Roe. You may know this, but if you Google you right now, there's like 40 pages of you winning Arizona's most intriguing woman. Did you know this? <laughs> I, I knew that I won it. I didn't know that there were 40 pages. It's like whoever was in charge of the publicity for this did a really good job. <laughs> Pat on the back to that person. But I mean, my, so with my with my elite fetus New York hat on, I hear Arizona's most intriguing woman. I don't think of you. <laughs> I think of someone that's going to be on TMZ or someone that's going to be in some good liars video or something like that. But this is a decent list of incredible human beings. Can you just briefly talk about this? Sure. It was an incredible honor, especially because of those individuals that you just alluded to. I mean, you know, a secretary of state, a number of um, uh, academic professors, you know, just the, the list goes on. An uh, individual who's been a real pioneer in autism um, and autism care. So it was very much a, a very big honor, very humbled by it. But I will tell you that uh, what really gets you off your pedestals when you go to your kids and they said, Intriguing is one word to describe you. Right. <laughs> yeah, they, of all the, I, I, I don't know, what are those, gerunds, adverbs, of all the ones they could have chosen, they picked intriguing. Not inspiring, yeah. not motivating, right. not entrepreneurial, but intriguing. Yeah, they, they liked that. They thought that could be defined or, or uh, yeah, defined very many ways. <laughs> we shouldn't be happy that we're celebrating women doing these things. This should just be part of culture and standard and normal. That and is true. I, I just, I'm, I'm still agog that this is something we're, we're worshiping at the altar of success. It shouldn't be. It should be what it is. I heard a comedian recently say something really funny because, you know, jokes are offensive to anyone these days. But it said, <laughs> if women led the world, there'd be no war, but there'd be no due process for men. <laughs> I think that's a little harsh. <laughs> I'm like, wait, my wife? Hi, Jess. Does she listen? But I, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm on the side of why aren't we there yet? <laughs> it's just, there's a, an odd cockeyed Jewish optimism here. But, but let's get into the meat and potatoes. What is it that we don't even think about yet that are going to be ramifications down the stream? Oh, there are so many. And one of the reasons that I wanted to put together this webinar was because I didn't think that any of us quite knew what those ramifications are and are going to be, not just to the individuals that may or may not be able to access abortion and healthcare, but to everyone because of that. So we focused on obviously the the policy issues and how this may have repercussions for everything from contraception to sexual rights to you know even um, gay marriage as well as the health implications of which they're legion, and but also the privacy issues that are just paramount with respect to, you know, who's going to be see, looking at your search, um, surveillance, data brokers selling your information, um, digital health apps that we, again, 
give so willingly our information and, and what are they really protected? And by the way, they're really not, um, especially if they're subpoenaed. And then the fourth piece that I thought was really intriguing, not necessarily a good way, is the economic cost. The economic cost to this country in terms of the increased healthcare cost of both what's going to happen if women can't get abortions and taking care of some of those um, children that are going to need long-term care because of the genetic deformities and also just the fact that we're going to have people in poverty that can't get out of poverty, but also issues that employers are dealing with right now. How are they going to send their um, women to places that may or may not provide health care to them or if they need to travel out of state to get health care or what's the liability? And especially also women's health companies now that are just now coming into their own. What is going to be the impact on investment for them? So the consequences are going to hit all of us. And I just want to make, you know, just if I can underline one thing. Sure. Our maternal child health statistics in this country are the worst. Our maternal mortality rate is the highest, if I can say that, in the developed world. And it's getting worse. And it's especially worse for women of color, especially black women. It is more dangerous to be pregnant than it is to have an abortion. And I'm not saying that it should be an either or. But then you factor in, again, all those other things that happen, such as miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies. And now we're even introducing something to the effect that physicians' hands are going to be tied because they don't know whether or not they can treat that person because it might be looked at as an abortion and then they have liability. I am so concerned about not only, you know, again, these are not, it's, it's obviously the health of women is a big deal. And we can even talk about the implications for women with cancer who are pregnant. But also many of those people have partners and have a vested interest, obviously, in this as well. So again, I could go on and on, but the, and unfortunately, the implications of this, the aftershocks, if you will, of this decision, unfortunately, are going to go on and on. I was reading a blog post. Yes, there are still blogs, by the way. I didn't know that. <laughs> about this harkens back to when people could discriminate against you for having had cancer when you're applying for a job because of your social footprint or because they could secretly get your medical records before HIPAA. And who's to say that employers in states where it's banned wouldn't want to hire somebody if they have a health history of having had an abortion in any state at any point in their life. You can now be completely disenfranchised and discriminated against to get work, too. Wow. That's a new one. I'll have to add that to the list because I had not thought about that. There's a lot of unanswered questions that even for those companies that are trying to do, quote, the right thing, I think that there's a lot of question marks about how you do that in a way to ensure privacy and ensure fairness. Right. And and just to wrap up, you had my friend, actually our dear friend, Kelly Stecker, an OBGYN yes. from Minneapolis on, on the, uh, on the webinar. And she's blogging like, like, like a wildfire all over the, uh, the interwebs about how there's yes. now hesitation to even become an OB and that women that are OBs are thinking of moving into 
PA positions or, you know, NP positions because they don't want to deal with the liabilities of being sued in almost like a retroactive way when people find out that this happened through cross-state. There's so much calculus of stupidity here. And if I can just, you know, underline what you said, thank you for, you know, again, bringing that up. We are not going to have enough OBGYNs and the OBGYNs that we have left are not going to be adequately trained because you don't just learn how to do an abortion. That's like an elective abortion. That kind of skill also is used when somebody miscarries. Yep. You know, and, and, and a lot of times it's not urgent, but sometimes it is and it's life threatening. And you want that OB to have had experience and those skills and potentially in half of the states in this country, those skills will not be trained. Well, I mean, <laughs> I hate to do that. We're at time ending on like a, a, a dour but opportunistic note. This is your vote matters, people, although yes, down ballots matter just as much. Absolutely. And that's, you know, one of our um, guests said this, that these kinds of laws happen, people don't vote because the primaries are as important as the actual election. So it's not too early to vote. And, you know, so that's important. But there's also things that we can do to protect ourselves. And we'll have all those resources on the website as well. There you go. I adore you. I love you. I'm, I'm grateful for you. And thank you. Back at you. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>